0: Welcome back to another edition of the Franchise Guide. The show that puts franchise films under the microscope, viewing each installment with both a professional eye and the loving lens of fandom. I'm John Evans and I'm joined as always by Michael T. Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Gentlemen, I'm so glad we could get the trio together again tonight. How are you, Vic? I'm doing very well, John. Glad to be back with you guys. We missed you. And you, Michael? Excellent. I am glad... Very glad indeed. So tonight we are still making our way through the Alien series. This is the, uh, chronologically speaking, the final film to date, unless you count Prometheus. Of course, I am referring to Alien Resurrection. Ha <laughs> ha! And let's begin, as always, with our uh, personal experience with this film. Mike, when was the first time you saw Jean-Pierre Junot's Amelie in Space, which was the uh, European title of this film, I believe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have seen this movie, I want to say, maybe once in the theater. With Alien 3, I had kind of this whole relationship with it, and this kind of emotional dance, and you know, the entire thing, and with Resurrection, I watched it today, and I believe it might be the second time I've watched this movie ever. So you saw, saw it in
0: the theater, or did you not?
1: I saw it when it first came out okay. in the theater uh, in 1997, and uh, I was excited because by that time, I had just started film school. And uh, there was nothing quite like film school than to start getting you interested in people like cinematographers. And uh I was really excited about a guy named Darius Kanji who was uh you know, who DP'd for this film. And uh I ran, ran ran right out. And um yeah, uh it's interesting that thanks to Alien 3, I have already had one Alien movie crush my little heart. <laughs> and so for that reason I didn't have the same visceral reaction and this time around. I, I just kinda watched Resurrection. Nodded say, slowly and sadly to myself, left the theater, and promptly ignored the this movie's existence until today.
0: <laughs> All right, so your enthusiasm is uh, is indeed yes yeah, palpable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vic, your turn. Uh, what's your relationship with this one?
2: Well, I I actually just want to say because it's it's funny to hear Mike mention Darius Kanji. I remember, uh, watching Wong Kar Wai's My Blueberry Nights, which I believe Darius Kanji also lensed, uh, for the exact same reason that I was like, oh my god, that guy plus Wong Kar Wai, like this is gonna be, oh my god, I never finished it. I never made it all the way through it. So, uh, so, and I'm, I'm still a fan, but anyways, you, you can't chase cinematographers.
1: He, he had a real run in the nineties and uh just for the hell of it, I pulled him up on IMDb and uh it's been pretty spotty since then. But it, it is interesting that it kinda of forms a triangle between, you know, uh Alien Three and this one, uh, in the sense that Fincher I mean he didn't shoot Alien Three, but uh he was kind of Fincher's go to guy for a while. And then he actually he shot this one. Yeah. And uh then he obviously did Resurrection. So yeah, there there's kind of a you know, it's a
0: tight-knit little group. When I was in grad school in, uh, like, 99, 2000, we had to do, like, a director's notebook for our script and, you know, basically crew it out, casting crew the project, <laughs> your dream setup. And, of course, Darius Kanji was my cinematographer for my zombie sure. script. And, yeah, I was a big fan as well. He had such a, a look, and he, was, he tended to be handheld, so there was a dynamic quality... A roving to his camera work that was pretty modern at that time and yeah uh he did have a run there but he has pretty much disappeared when you look at his his stuff uh ironically i'm doing bios for one of his movies right now the lost oh really z yes Hmm. uh which is going to be coming out so yeah Vic, uh back to your initial thoughts about this film when you saw it in 97
2: I won't even swear I saw it in ninety seven. I think this was one of the ones where I had enough advanced word that I avoided it. You know, ninety-seven I was graduating from high school on my way to college, uh, and I I did not have time to take off from drinking and chasing girls to uh go see movies that I knew were gonna be bad. Um, <laughs> so uh I think my my first encounter with this was probably on HBO or some, you know, something like that. I'm reasonably sure I came into it at the scene where Ripley goes into the lab and finds all of the fucked up Ripley clones, mm-hmm. and
1: uh, you know, has to burn them everything. Oh, you mean and, one of the only cool scenes in the entire movie? Yes, I, I'm well, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh,
2: and thus, actually, missed the notorious basketball scene. This was my first time catching that. Right. Um, I was listening to Kevin Smith's uh, Fat Man on Batman podcast, which I assure you is actually very entertaining. He co-hosts it with Mark Bernardin, who is the film editor for the LA Times. Very funny, very smart guy. They were talking about Alien Covenant because they just showed some footage of that to some critics, I think, in New York, and they got to talking about the old Alien films and how Bernardin said, you know, the, the first Alien movie is, as we've all said, is a you know is a haunted house movie. You know, the second Alien is a is a war movie. The third Alien really a prison movie, and and the fourth Alien is a I don't know a, a basketball movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a nineties movie. This is like a concentrated chunk of nineties kryptonite.
2: Yeah, so I think I watched the rest of it. I feel like I probably tuned in and out of it. I have very distinct memories of the end uh with the alien-human-hybrid death scene. We won't, won't get into that too far, but I do remember watching it for a little bit, going, oh, this isn't so bad, and then by the end going, oh, no, it is. <laughs> and, and, and consequently have not revisited it until earlier today.
0: Darius Conchi, by the way, <laughs> just to come back to that for a second, City of Lost Children was a, a Pierre Jean-Pierre Jeannot film that they collaborated on, which I thought was really striking. Uh, previous mm-hmm. to this, he also did uh, notably the Beach, which whether you like the movie or not, like had a, a great look to it and I love course, the beach yeah, yeah it, it's a really uh, interesting Danny Boyle film, Panic Room, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, oh the ruins as well, FYI, which I, I think is an underrated horror film.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, when we pulled him up on IMDB while I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, shit, he did The Ruins. And, uh yeah, I, I love the book. And mm-hmm. uh, for uh I have no idea why that movie got – a lot of people jumped up and down on top of The Ruins. And I have no idea why. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and even having read the book first, which usually is the kiss of death for enjoying a film. Mm. Uh,
2: He's, he's gotten on as, uh, Woody Allen's guy too, which even if you're talking about late period Woody Allen, there's, there's worse jobs in the world to have than, uh, uh, Midnight in Paris in particular, I think is terrific. So mm. um, let's not shed any more tears for Darius Kanji.
0: <laughs> he's done <laughs> quite well. If
1: yeah, if I yeah. see him finally get a 10 cup on sunset, I'll be sure to whip <laughs> him up, whip <laughs> a couple of bucks, help him out, dust him <laughs> off. So. It's never 7-2 <laughs> never came along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, my relationship with this film is a little warmer uh, than your guys'. Uh, I think I would kind of equate the experience of seeing it to one of the Star Wars prequels where I was emotionally so, so devastated by Alien 3 and so angry at it that this movie didn't have to do much to represent uh, a tick in the right direction. So I enjoyed it. I mean, I never would have said it was a, a fine film. I did review it for my uh, college newspaper and gave it a pretty favorable review, as I recall. Primarily just because it's not derivative of the previous films. I mean, I've heard some people say that, but I feel like it definitely has its own... Uh, vibe, its own tone, whether you like that tone or not, it's distinct, it's very French. Um, but it, it, it didn't feel like just a by the number sequel. They're, they're trying to do something here. And it has its scenes. Like I was, I'm sure we'll get into it quite, uh, in detail. But the underwater scene just kind of blew me away at the time. I, I just, I was so excited to see aliens operating in that environment and i thought the effects were credible and i i still think that they are i mean compared to alien 3's effects watching this uh last night i thought that the the cgi was reasonable so as 90s as the film is and i i agree with that it's a lot better than the cgi in uh most 90s films i think that's fair to say
1: yeah i wholeheartedly agree uh, that Kitchen sequence, yeah. uh, the underwater kitchen swing sequence. I, I thought, it, it, you know, just the entire thing where they pop up and there's eggs right there and they're jumping on them. Uh, I mean, that entire thing, uh, was honestly thrilling. Uh, I distinctly recall when I saw it in the theater and when I was watching it today, I'm like, this is cool.
0: Yeah, I'll probably be sticking up for the movie a little bit, you know, because, there were multiple scenes watching last night, or at least moments, if not scenes, where I just had the simple thought, "Oh, that's that's pretty cool. You know, I, I like that. I like the the design of it. Uh, if it's you know, if it's a a creature, or uh, you know, use of usage of the aliens in some way." Uh, I really liked uh, one of the last kills in, in the film. A guy has an alien inside of him and he has the presence of mind to charge this villainous character that needs to be gotten and positions himself so that the alien bursts from his chest and through the guy's head. And, you know, just in sort of a Friday the 13th kind of a way, I thought that was a, a quality alien kill.
2: Mike, I hope that you and I can agree that, that we should gang up on John
1: anytime. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> well, okay. Let me, like, just kind of throw out an, an, an uber thought that I had, and this is one of the, you know, the fruits that you get from doing a podcast of this nature where you're kind of watching these movies back to back is, I mean, John, you and I just did Alien 3, and our main complaint slash takeaway from that was, They were doing everything in their power to make watching the film the most miserable experience possible. Uh, Like anything, like like they would actually create situations where in normal movies you would find enjoyment out of like say a romantic connection or a joke or uh, a character and they would consistently just stomp on the popcorn. They would stomp, stomp, stomp on the popcorn again and again and again. Until it became almost pathological, and by the time you get to the end of the movie, it's like, okay, well, that was what that movie's about. It was like, you know, uh, you know, 120 days is sallow. <laughs> you know? it's like, um, whereas I had the thought watching this one that they stepped away, looked at the underperformance and critical backlash against three, and they said, okay, no one likes this movie because it's too mean, it's too err, uh, you know, so we need to. Now we need it to brighten it up. And so they bring in Jeunet and, uh, a certain young gentleman named Joss Whedon. Never heard of him. Yeah. And, and, uh, (laughs) yeah. And City of Lost Children and Delicatessen, I I definitely, uh, have a lot of darker strokes. I mean, there's a nightmarish element to it, but, uh, it's French Tim Burton to be a little broad. Yeah, there's a nightmarish fairy tale quality. So there's always, there's still like a, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of whimsy to these films, kind of a a heartbeat to it. And I think that he brought that to this movie. Uh, and I don't know that it connects with the poor material. And then you kind of pair that with Whedon's kind of ensemble snappy jokey thing. And, uh, we go from dour British drama slash horror movie to the uh, the most popcorn that I've seen one of these films attempt to do. I, I I could imagine some people finding this to be entertaining. And uh for me it I, I found it off putting. I, I thought it jangled with the core material.
0: Interesting. Because like I think the word that really does come to mind for me with this movie is fun. Especially as you said, coming off of Alien 3 Like, it's hard for me even, you know, a few weeks down the road from watching Alien 3 to just not be reminded of what a trudge that film was for me. And I, you know, I enjoyed watching this last night.
1: There are a lot of funny, big, crowd-pleasing, quotable moments in Aliens, but it's never goofy. And this, it reminded me most in tone of Terminator 3. That, that was kind of the recurring thought that I had the entire time while I was watching this. So I'm like, this is like watching Arnold Schwarzenegger put on funny glasses.
2: This felt like a, like a notes meeting to me. And I, I say that admitting, in fact, that, that some of the notes do work. Cause the underwater sequence, I agree with you guys. That's one of the ones where I was like, you know, you can see them sitting around going, all right, what's something we haven't done with it? You know, all right, uh, uh, underwater aliens. Yes. I love it. Like let's do that. You know, but it's, but you can also see, well, so Weaver's getting kinda old, we need somebody young to get the kids in there. What about Winona Ryder? You know, let's, let's, let's stick with the, the, you know, the alpha female woman thing. You know, it needs to be funnier, we need more aliens, cause the one alien in Alien 3 didn't work, so we're gonna, you know, we'll do that. I really felt the presence of a studio trying to steer each individual beat toward satisfying some perceived audience need instead of feeling a director's vision on it, which I think, again, listening to you guys talk about Alien 3, and I suspect you guys would agree with this, as dour and and for all the problems that there were with Alien 3 – it's a, that's a David Fincher movie. It is dark. They set out to make the art house version of an alien film and that's what we got. And this for some of the unique kind of visual takes and some of the, the individual shots that I thought were really cool. Couple of fisheye lenses and stuff that made you think of City of the Lost Children, the tracking shot when Dan Hedaya rolls the grenade at the, the escape pod that's getting ready to go out and stuff. There are individual moments that might feel like a Jean-Pierre Jeunet film, but this feels like a studio product. This doesn't feel like City of the
1: Lost Children. This doesn't feel like Mic Max or, or Amelie. I would say that we didn't cast a far longer shadow. And, uh, here's, here's the other thing too. In terms of the pirate crew, they feel like a warm up to Firefly. Ah, that's interesting. Because we have this tiny little crew. It's run by a rough, but endearing mm. alpha male. We have a happily married couple on the ship. We have a tough guy who's kind of dumb and violent, Baldwin in the series and uh, Ron Perlman in the movie. We have a cute, perky female as the resident gearhead. And uh, the movie does include a, uh, a woman who was basically created in a lab who has extraordinary powers. Mm. I wondered if this is just something that a dynamic that was interesting to Whedon like a long time ago, and he decided to use this movie as a way to like take it for a test run, or if he kind of developed this scenario for the movie, and when it underperformed, he's like, you know, there's still something to that Fire Crew man. I I'd, I'd actually like to see what they're up to, and that's for all I know, that's the genesis of Firefly and Serenity. But I mean, there there's so many cross parallels that I, it became impossible to ignore. Yeah,
2: well, I like the emphasis. Remember there's all the scenes with the different weapons. That's one of the, one of the scenes that I particularly liked actually was when, when Under Rider is discovered and the, you know, the, all the bad guys are lining up and then you get Christie's handguns that pop out and, uh, Ron Perlman, you know, is able to turn his coffee thermos into a shotgun or whatever. Although, before I go any further, I gotta say this, did anybody else have this reaction when I, because I'd forgotten that Ron Perlman was in this. You think about when I picked it up, Ron, oh, I guess Ron Perlman survives. Anyways, mm-hmm. the point is, when I saw him in the thing, I was like, wait a minute, did I put on Blade 2? <laughs> like, it's literally, it like gets almost exactly the same performance and the same character, and even the opening beat, like the way that, the, the, again, the basketball scene, but the the interaction, the tone of that interaction is just identical to the, his first interaction with Wesley Snipes in Blade 2.
1: <laughs> per the basketball scene, I, I, I didn't hate it. I thought it was vaguely amusing. Mostly because Sigourney Weaver is having a hell of a time with this character. I, I think that she's done the really dour, sad, strip down to the bone of her soul version with this one i mean she is really chewing the scenery up man and i think that that's actually one of if not entirely my favorite aspect of this film is just watching her as sigourney weaver just really enjoy herself with a a fresh take on on ripley also as kind of a weird side note you guys may recall that just the year before in 1996 there was another sci-fi sequel related that had a Unexpected basketball scene, and that was Escape from LA. That's, oh. yeah. That's right. Yeah, where I, I, I mean, and wh- why? Why was that in the air at that time? Why? why in the mid nineties <laughs> did we need to have characters <laughs> playing basketball? I mean, it's, it's almost like the the evil Rastafarians who started popping up in action movies <laughs> in, in nineteen ninety.
2: Mike, I just want to nail. I just want to nail you down on this. Are, are you saying that you really feel that Sigourney Weaver? is better in this film than Winona Ryder because – Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Most be, no, be, I'm, I'm, yeah. Mike, I'm, I'm kidding because she's yeah. – <laughs> uh, Winona Ryder is awful in this movie. And yeah. this is the day when she is announced deservedly as a Golden Globe nominee for Stranger Things. I'm a fan. She's
1: awful in this. I mean, like, like, Age of Innocence, awful. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, it's very clear that, uh, this movie happened during that period of time when she was Hollywood's go-to ingenue. And so, you know, for the same reason that she played Mina Harker, you know, she was playing, she was playing Robot in this. And, um, I mean, she's easy on the eyes. And I, there, there are things that I, I honestly love her in, uh, Heather's being the top of the list. But I, in terms of this material, I noticed that the camera would occasionally just keep cutting back to her just for her reaction. And uh, they light her like a very pale Audrey Hepburn. And so it would be like this, you know, very dark yellow and gray Darius Kanji kind of lit type thing. And then every once in a while we like just kind of pop over and see what Moonface is thinking about the situation. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> With her big eyes and her white face and just a blank look. Whereas Sigourney Weaver was very clearly having a hell of a time with this character it really felt like a. You mean, day. by
0: the way, to clarify, she's having a hell of a good time. She's not having a hell of a time, like struggling. Is that? No, no, no. Okay.
1: I, I, you, you can see her like thoroughly enjoying mm-hmm. being this character in this movie. I, because I, and, uh, you know, just, just every time she starts sniffing people, I, I laughed. You know, uh, it's a very weird, interesting, fun, different thing, and it's like you know, sometimes. There's this urge that we have to do things different just to, ooh, yeah, la you know, and sometimes that, you know, I, I far be it for me to try to crush anybody else's creativity, but a lot of times that doesn't work out. You get away from what the audience paid 10 bucks to see. But in this case, it's like, yeah, I, actually, I came to really enjoy watching her be evil Ripley
2: you can see what drew her back to this. I remember reading uh when she did, when she signed up for alien three, that she did it only on the condition that Ripley die at the end, because there just wasn't anything else you could do to this character. And so that was, that was sort of her stipulation for doing it. And then you can see, and it's something that I have gotten more sensitive to. I feel like as, as I've gotten older and just spent time in Hollywood and everything else, like, 10 years after that, well, how long, when was Alien 3, 93? Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, so five years later, I'm sure the money came calling, whatever else, you know, whatever it was that motivated her to want to come back to this, she said, well, look, I'll come back, but I don't want to do mopey, you know, I don't want to do another dour version of this. you got to give me something else to play. And so the idea that she's part alien and, like, and she's, she's kind of crazy and part animal, she can hear the aliens in her head, that stuff is all. I'm sure fascinating. I mean, it does go back to look. Joss Whedon, for whatever the faults in the script are, Joss Whedon writes strong, interesting female characters, and if you give them to interesting, strong actresses, you're going to get good things out of it. And so I, she's brilliant. She, I agree. She's terrific in it. I mean, she really gives it her, her all. I think she's having fun with it. She's yeah. the most watchable. She's the most watchable part of this.
1: There is one thing i'd like to point out in the opening moments of the film because we we open on a set of scary gnashing teeth and we pull back to find out that it's just a it's not an alien it's just a bug and then the bug gets smashed and the camera pulls way 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 back and we see that it's a guy on a ship and that's that's the and, special
0: edition that you're talking about by the way that's not the theatrical version of the film i i, I remember seeing that in the theater Nope, 2003 special edition. That's the worst CGI in the film. Also, yeah,
1: it is, it is, it is. It's like, but it's exactly the kind of like dumb thing that 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 still like carries in a pitch because it sounds cool. On the one hand, like that's a cool uh, example of an extreme, you know, pull out reveal. Mm -hmm. On the on the other hand, it immediately sets you up. I I I I I just simply remember thinking, oh no. After Alien 3, I was prepared for disappointment with this one, but I was equally prepared for a rebound. I I mean, it was like a who's who of, like, people from cool 90s stuff. It's like I like Chune, I like Darius Kanji, I like uh, Wincott and Pearlman, and even Winona Ryder, I thought it was at least hot. And, you know, it's like, oh, they, they figured out a way to get Ripley back in the thing.
0: And, you know, it's...
1: I, I, was, I know you I, were I a huge Dan helped.
0: Hedaya fan as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah and <laughs> let, let me tell you this on I, on I, the subject of acting performances. Cool, cool, yeah. uh, apparently, Dan Hedaya and the guy who plays the lead scientist who pulls a Burke later on, Brad Doris. yeah,
0: J E. Freeman, yeah,
1: yeah. Who incidentally, that guy played the Dane in uh, Miller's Crossing. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, I liked him a lot better in that movie. But uh, apparently, Jeunet's direction to both of those actors was to bug out your eyes and pull <laughs> wacky and pull wacky faces in every scene to let the audience know that you're villains. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, actually, it's funny I, you mentioned Wincott
2: and and John. I wanted to to bring this up to you uh, to our, to our listeners. This is the kind of Hollywood insider information that you will only get here on the Franchise Guys. Boy. John and I both worked for uh, the comedy that produced a movie that no one saw called Twisted. Uh, it was directed by Philip Kaufman and uh, starred Ashley Judd and Samuel L. Jackson and Andy Garcia. And we were – John, you were still there when we cast for it, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. Right? So we got to see all these – fucking cool actors come in and like you know I mean I saw Ray Liotta looking out the window mournfully while he was waiting to talk to the producers about his potential role in this and everything else and so all of us in the office are bantering about about oh well I like this person for this part and this person for this part and the part that eventually went to Andy Garcia I knew as John I don't know if you encountered this but the Paramount really wanted Michael Wincott for this part. And there was this huge push at this time, for some reason, lots of people thought that Michael Wincott was about to be a big star. And they were trying to get him while he was still cheap to put in these movies. And I just remember seeing that in an email and going,
1: who
2: the fuck is Michael Wincott? (laughs) And looking it up and going, the bad guy from The Crow?
1: Really? I loved him as Top Dollar. I fucking loved everything about that movie, and he, and it's, uh, you know, there 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 are like a dozen things, uh two dozen things that I love about The Crow, and uh, Michael, Michael is, wink as Top Dollar is definitely one of them.
2: This is, by no means is this a knock on Michael Wincott or The sure. Crow, because I feel just about the same way you do, mm-hmm. but the guy is also, it was just, it. Felt like the most random, like Hollywood was attempting to tap this guy with the magic wand that was going to make him a movie star where the studio was like, what about Michael Wincott for that, uh, that detective part? And hmm. I was like looking around going, why? Why? Like he's a great thing. <laughs> like, I like him, but like why? And of course it, it eventually went to Andy Garcia. It didn't matter because it didn't do anything. That what actually- I
0: remember, by the way, Vic, about Michael uh, – about not Michael Wincott but Andy Garcia's contract was that he would not do any scenes with his shirt off. And it was supposedly because he had some kind of scar because he was a he – he was like a, a – yeah, a conjoined twin and he has this nasty scar and he would never uh be photographed without his shirt on for that reason. So, uh, wait.
2: We should say something for the lawyers that that is an unsubstantiated rumor <laughs> saying that Andy Garcia had a conjoined twin. That is just uh, something an intern, an unpaid intern at our company uh, named Ann Copelson said.
0: <laughs> yeah, go blame that 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 intern Ann, if you yes. uh, if you have a problem. So yeah, Michael Wincott is kind of wasted in this film. By the way, I'm not a fan of The Crow. I just tried to watch it again and I found it utterly predictable and just- Wait, right, get him!
2: Get him! Come on, this <laughs> <and> it!
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll Girl, save up, that.
1: I, I, if, if we're going to talk about late 90s genre of filmmaking, everybody lost their minds over The Matrix. I, I, I was a crow guy. I fucking love The Crow.
0: No, I completely am on the other side of that fence.
1: <laughs> and I, I think that
0: history bears that out as well as far as just like, you know, what's more, um, what was more influential for better or for worse. Uh, the Matrix definitely had a larger footprint, but we'll put that aside. For I, think, now.
2: I think a little, a little actor named Ernie Hudson
0: would disagree with you, my friend. <laughs> I love just Ernie Hudson. <laughs> And I also love Ron Perlman. Um, I think Ron Perlman, uh, by the way, Blade, uh, two was, um, like four years after this film. And Next. maybe he was, you know, perfecting a, a type that he would, uh, be developing for a while. But I, I enjoy him very much in this film. I do not enjoy Dan Hidea. I will say that one of the things where I will undoubtedly fall in line with you guys on this film, would be that his performance is cranked up to 12 um, and it's, it's kind of painful. It's definitely one of the eye rolly things, but I I think overall this film doesn't have all that many eye rolly moments, even though like the tone is elevated consistently, you know, and part of that is the director and part of it is Joss Whedon's script. But it, it for the most part is a heightened but consistent tone that, because of that consistency, I think it works. I don't think this is a film that doesn't, you know, maintain a sense of what it is or what it's doing. I think it it's assured in in what it's doing, and there's a dark humor to it and a a colorful, almost comic booky vibe to it. That, uh, works for this. I mean, again, this is a, a franchise that reinvents itself every time out, as you mentioned earlier, Mike. I mean, Aliens is as different from Alien as this is different from Alien 3. So. Well, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go I'm on. just going to
0: say, yeah, I mean, the consistency issue or being true to the source material, as you've mentioned a couple of times, like, I don't know that any of these movies show much uh reverence to anything is 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 what i would say how i would put it
1: well I, I thought it was of interest when i saw the one sheet for alien Covenant, and it's just a uh, xenomorph's head in shadow and a single word run at the bottom of the page and i thought aha at long last we have come all the way back to what was interesting about these movies in the first place. Uh You know, kind of the uh, the other Uber thought that I was having while I was watching this film was I was thinking about Cameron. Uh, I was thinking about yeah you know, the the point that you just brought up that every single one of these movies is is kind of its own thing. And I think what happened was when Cameron did Aliens, the the thought was injected into the franchise that every that every take had to be uh, could. And or should be a different thing. And, uh, you know, he did kind of the same thing with, uh, again, the Terminator franchise. You know, he, in a certain way, he ruined the Aliens franchise by being so fucking awesome in the sequel that, uh, every sequel after that had to be like, uh, oh yeah, we've got to do something completely different with another, uh, uh, uh interesting filmmaker and da 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 da. And uh, whether that's going to work or not, and uh, you know, very similarly, uh, after Cameron not only did Terminator, but then also reinvented his own movie franchise, and then left uh, thereafter, no one's been able to do a good Terminator movie.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he sets a high bar. Uh, I don't think it's really similar to Terminator Three, though. I mean, I, I think this movie uh, doesn't have the the same failings at all. I mean, and again, it's not a perfect film, but it. It, it's not that kind of failure.
2: If you think that's going to sway Mike and I? By the, the end talk. of this
0: podcast, you guys are going to say, oh my God, I can't wait to see this again right, right. now.
1: Uh, well, one, one, one tiny, 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 tiny thing. Uh, when we see the bug and we pull back and the bug is smashed and then the camera goes into uh, through the window and into the ship, it passes to security guards. We're flanking a door and uh if you'll notice they're both chewing gum, both of them. <laughs> I don't know
0: why. <laughs> that was somewhat eye roll to me in that like when you, you truck down this hallway and there's these two perfectly paralleled scientists on either side of the walkway and they're both sort of bent over doing scientisty things, you immediately feel like you're in a already French movie and not really in the universe of of the alien franchise and well
1: yeah i, I mean it's not the, just that's it's french it's it's also this filmmaker because i mean you know uh if you look at city of lost children and amelie you know he's going for like a heightened dreamlike yeah you know situation and uh you know it's like you know the the first three alien movies uh have all been kind of grounded and grungy and dirty and, uh, you know, it's got dirt on its face, you know, these movies.
0: Well, there's plenty uh, of dirt in this film, to be fair.
1: Uh, I, I, and this one is, uh, is, is, is way more cotton candy. It's a lot more brightly lit and fun. Uh, even when they're kind of tromping around hallways, it's very clean. Uh, Kanji mm-hmm. has to work really hard to, uh, to make the hallways look kind of creepy. Every once in a while you get kind of a, you know, kind of that, that yellowish foggy blur that he likes. But, uh, a lot of it is very clean, almost antiseptic. It it feels like the Disney ride version of an alien movie.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I saw that. I, I I thought it was, there's lots of shadows. There's, by by
1: way, by way of juxtaposition, when they go down into that water, uh, and they're like, Oh, the, the place is flooding and the water is like crystal clear blue. (laughs) And then they go into the kitchen and like the worst thing about the kitchen is there's like plates on the floor. Uh, you know, I enjoy, you know, could compare that to Alien, Aliens, Alien 3. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, by comparison, sure. Yes, sure.
1: yes, yes.
0: So in that opening sequence, we're introduced visually to this idea that Ripley has been cloned. And we see her go from being a child to more or less, you know, the adult version that we're going to... To meet and it weirdly reminded me of Robocop i don 't know if you guys felt this way, but early on we have this sort of the doctors are educating her and testing her and things like that, and she's an adult body, but sort of being treated like a child, and you know she's dangerous and volatile. It was also a strong vibe of lefemme Nikita to that. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I just want to stress about the, the the earliest of scenes. Number one, like when you're casting the part, when I'm thinking of the very sort of very opening scene when they're extracting the alien from her body. Is there anybody on Earth who doesn't go? Who do we get for this? Is Brad Durf <laughs> available? <laughs> I, yeah, <dude>. yeah, Brad, <laughs> of course, Brad Durf is available. Like unless there's another creepy, weird, fucking scientist that somebody needs somewhere, Brad Durf is available.
1: Um, Dude, I will say this: that that man is an absolute national fucking treasure. He, he is a He's really fuck. good at what he does. If it's this,
2: if it's Rob Zombie's Halloween, if it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I'm a, I'm a fan. But I'm just saying, like, it's almost like you know, oh, you know, we need a we need a uh, you know a, a slutty girl, but she might have a heart of gold. It's like. What? Where's Brittany
1: Murphy? Is, she, is right, right, she? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, you know, I, I per that thought, uh, I was thinking while I was watching this. Uh, you know, at the very end when he's kind of cocooned, yes, and the hybrid gives birth, and Dorif goes, "Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful butterfly!" <laughs> and I yeah. thought, "Thank God this is Brad Dorif giving these lines." And I also thought, <laughs> "Of course, it's Brad Dorif giving these lines. <laughs> Who else?" In the entire world, would be in that cocoon saying that saying those lines. Uh, besides Brad Dorf, thank God that man is is out there and working and exists and he brings the light of, of his talent to all of us. <laughs> and I, the other thing that I encountered during that scene was I was eating my like fucking lunch while I was trying to
2: while I was watching that, and I was like, and they were like peeling back skin, and I'm literally eating roasted tomatoes from my company's kitchen, and and I just. So I, there may be details in that scene that I missed because I just wasn't looking.
1: Oh, (laughs) Vic, you have seen actual human children having given birth to. Mike, that's uh, a,
2: that's a myth,
1: okay? (laughs) (laughs) That is is not substantiated. What, does Emily just come home with these people? Is that what happened? The stork (laughs) delivers them.
0: So, yeah, the, the problematic part about this for me, like just when you look at what exactly brought Ripley back to this film, I don't think that that's well explicated at all. The idea that like blood samples from Fury, the planet that, uh, Fiorina or whatever the hell you want to call it from Alien 3 are mm-hmm uh recovered this is 200 freaking years later by the way something that i did find very i don't know pleasurable somehow was when they say that the Wayland Uteddy Corporation is no more and it's because Walmart bought them out. Like I did enjoy that. I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, th- th- that's, that's a pure weed line. And I'm sure I, I, it's, it's also the exact kind of thing where I'm just like, someone thought that was really funny. Uh, I, 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 that line does touch on, I'm speaking of Robocop. This is the first alien movie. To try to engage in, in kind of a satire. I, I, well, I mean, that's not true. Like, like uh, aliens kind of bring certain elements of the first movie to the fore, uh, with, um, Burke and that conference room scene, but it's, it's still very subtle. It's very grounded. Uh, whereas this, uh, it feels like, um, not quite Robocop, but more like Robocop 2, hmm. where it's, uh, a little more ham-fisted, a little more just kind of dumped on, dumped into the scene. Like when they're watching, like the Home Shopping Network, and they're selling guns and knives, yeah, uh, you know, the stuff like that. That I, was like, lame. They're, they're...
0: I, I, didn't think that was a, uh, a very prescient choice to have the Home Shopping Network of all things, right, be still right. in existence in twenty three seventy nine.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. It's like you know, the Walmart line, uh, the Home Shopping Network. Uh, there's like a uh, one or two other things kind of floating around there, but I mean, this one is trying to be murky. Uh, it's trying to be dark sattery, uh and, and kind of the key of Robocop and getting a little bit closer to Robocop too.
2: It's worth pointing out too, because I just Googled this. Dolly the Sheep was cloned on July fifth, nineteen ninety six. So this was a time when the idea of cloning was very much in the forefront of people's consciousness. People didn't know what it was going to be. I mean, you know, this is the this is the cloning equivalent of like, you know, the net or uh <laughs> uh, or something where we didn't know we didn't know there was this new technology and 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 writers were sort of trying to to establish well this is where it's going to go and uh, most oh, most of it was wildly wrong
1: i thought that there is a consistent theme of cross hybridization cloning harken back to all the millions of people who tuned in last time when john and i talked about you know, three and uh I, for for me it's a it's, it's not a very strong movie, but it's got some cool ideas. And one of the cool ideas is that the alien is born from a non-human host and thereby is different. And I think that, you know, the creative team picked up on that and there was like, where can we go with this idea? And I would say beyond, you know, besides Sigourney Weaver's performance, uh that's kind of my other favorite thing about this film is they kind of take their own cool idea from three and run with it.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it is interesting that, the fact that the aliens have a very strong genetic memory where, you know, like I think there's something to, you know, to say for this in nature in, in general with animals, of course, is that they just know how to do certain things because their, their genes are somehow encoded with genetic memory and you don't have to teach this animal to do that. And somehow that enables Ripley to have genetically coded her own personal memories from her previous life. And, and so she doesn't remember Newt's name, but she remembers that she had this relationship and it, it still haunts her, which I liked
1: that pause yeah. when they showed the girl card. I, I, I thought that was
0: very nice. Absolutely. And I think the film is loaded with stuff like that. I mean, again, not to just be a, a total apologist for it, but there are okay. many little moments like that that, tap into the previous films. And, you know, sometimes it's a little explicit, like in this initial uh, scene, we get her as voiceover reprise the line from aliens. When she's talking about, you know, my mother used to tell me that there are no monsters, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, no real ones anyway. And that's not true. And, and so you, you have this, you know, really blatant callback, but you know, in general, The tips of the hat to the previous films mostly are just about Ripley as a character. And I think that those little touch points maintain our sense, even though the character has changed, transformed so much, like these little flashes of her that are still there. At this point, you know, I think they all kind of resonate and they add, they remind us that this is the same person, but she's just been through so fucking much at this point that uh, I think that's something that we talked about last time that I think they bring to a, a reasonable facsimile of full fruition here, which is the idea that what is the worst thing you could do to Ellen Ripley, you know, making her unwillingly complicit with the aliens, you know, as it is sort of rape, like, like so much of the, the imagery of the alien life cycle is they rape you and they make you part of the family. Well, you know, not necessarily in the normal way. She has that fate has befallen her and she is now torn between those two families, our family and their family. And the question of her divided loyalty, she has said, the actress, you know, was a big part of why she went with this take and signed on. And I'm sure, you know, being paid the entire production budget of the first film didn't hurt either. But, you know, there's... <laughs> well, she, she is a
1: co-producer. So, I mean, it's not like anyone's thrusting, you know, lines at her and telling her where to stand, you know. And she's definitely, hey, hey, you know... Hey, hey.
2: Just because this is an
1: alien movie doesn't mean you can use words like
2: thrusting when you're talking about (laughs) that.
1: Well, let me ask you guys this. Does the genetic intelligence go the other way? Because I think the movie is trying to shape the aliens into being more intelligent than they have before, Uh, that they aren't just like kind of running their instinctual programs, that they're a little more um, crafty. They're a little more snaky. They're a little more thoughtful. For example,
0: the scene in which they escape, which, you know, is kind of logical and obvious in a sense, but But... they, they pick out one of their own and they, a weak one clearly, and he doesn't like the plan. And I kind of like the way the puppet acting goes on that. And they devour him. He bleeds out and the other captive aliens. Escape because, of course, as we all know, the alien blood is acid. So that's kind of what you're referring to there initially, right?
1: And and, and kind of throughout there, I, I that that's the biggest sign. But there are little you know hints and and beats throughout the film in which you, you 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 see a higher level of intelligent behavior out of these creatures that we haven't seen before. And the question is, is it because? You know the genetic material goes both ways. That they've got all, a little
0: Ellen Ripley in them,
1: ex- exactly. That they have a little more human in them, thanks to the fact that you know they're they're all children of the Ellen Ripley host.
2: I actually think far more, well, not far more, but uh, the, the a, a good example of that is when they lure one of the guards into the chamber, and then the alien actually punches the button.
0: Um, that reminded me of Gremlins, the frozen stuff. What's that? That reminded me of Gremlins for some reason.
2: Well, you know what it reminded
0: me of? And and just take this journey with me, guys. What
2: that reminded <laughs> is Ghostbusters. Because the thought that I had was, all right, so we've established that the aliens take on the characteristics of the, the, the host that they embody. If it's a dog, it's a person, whatever. Like, if you're the scientist trying to resurrect the aliens, aren't you trying to think of the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man of hosts? <laughs> Like don't you have, isn't there like a, like a sea otter? Or like what's the cutest, most harmless animal that you can impregnate with an alien that would maybe come out with something a little more docile? They keep putting humans in front of them and then being shocked when they get these violent. Yeah,
0: that's uh, a really good uh, point. Yeah, yeah,
1: what's the HR Giger
0: version of a chinchilla? <laughs> yeah yeah i mean they choose i think it is notable that the the betty the the pirate ship their mission why they're in this film is they were charged with bringing these guys in stasis that they apparently you know however they obtained them it was not willingly clearly they have brought some human Victims to be subjects here in this test, and and the guys on the 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 scientists on the Ariga, which is the ship that most of the film takes place on, the military scientists literally just put eggs in front of these victims so that they can be impregnated by the aliens. And it definitely begs the question, like we know, everyone should know by now, that you know you can use any kind of life form essentially as a host for the aliens. So the fact that they use humans is if you just look at it morally or what the implications would be an incredibly fucked up thing. Like even Whalen Yutani, like the idea was, well, we want this, you know, no matter what, we want this thing back in our labs. And if that has to be in the body of an expendable crew person, so be it. But you kind of have the feeling they wouldn't like choose or arrange that fate. And, and, and the guys in this movie have. And I, I think that's somewhat, you know, cheap. I don't necessarily think there's a great amount of thought that went into that.
1: The other thing that was bugging me about this film, of the many things that bug me about this film, is they repeat the mistake of part three, is that our supporting characters are completely reprehensible. Uh, in Alien 3, we're, we're told, look at all these guys, they are murderers and rapists. And then in the second half of the movie, we're supposed to care whether or not they die. We're supposed to root for them. Uh, and, John, you pointed out when we were talking about that film that, uh, you know, they may have been striving for a certain level of redemption. And because they're re- religious characters, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's a thought process to be had in that. In this film, though, the pirate crew, they are guys who make their living by pouncing on sh- uh, mining ships exactly like the Nostromo. And grabbing the people who are in stasis and selling them for cash to be, uh, used as test subjects. And the movie asks us to go, yeah, but they're kooky, wacky characters with, uh, you know, weed and esque, uh, you know, uh, uh, pattern between them. Thereby you should care if these aliens like murder them or not. And the answer is consistently no.
0: Yeah, that is problematic. I will agree. And I want to like throw it back to Vic here, but I think that the morality of the film it almost feels like it's not pointed it's not really purposeful it is kind of haphazard those choices that I don't think they really thought that through I don't think they have a a strong stance on how we should view these pirates on the Betty and if anything yeah it is very apologist and you are just supposed to embrace them even though they've done this like i don't know how you would justify that like and the idea you're sort of i think taking a jump which is like this is a a routine mission i i gave them at least the benefit of the doubt that this was like a a strange request that they fulfilled um so i wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say like this is all they do is just hijack people i think this is a weird case but still it's very it's dubious to be to so, that. Th- th-
1: yeah they do it eggs hatch people get hosted w- w- whether it's one time or many times it's still you know a job that they do so at the end of the film when they crash land on earth and uh ron perlman and uh the french guy get out and they're like yay we survived the music cues tell us that we're supposed to be happy for them i'm just like no fuck these guys what the fuck
0: <laughs> well, John or the Ron Perlman character is a utterly consistently reprehensible character. There's no Actually, doubt about that.
1: Yeah, I, I I found him the most entertaining to watch besides yeah. Ripley. Uh, a, because it's Perlman and B, because I just thought the character was funny. But at the same time, it's just like Alien 3. We have a film, you know, they're not a group of space truckers like in one. They're not a group of space Marines like in two. You know, they're a group of villains and the movie says, we, we, we should feel sad when the alien bites their head off. And the answer is no, I don't. And so that I, and that, that, that there's a hole where audience sympathy should go that isn't filled by a through line of thematic thoughts.
0: So you don't, you have any sympathy for the paraplegic guy? God, you're such a jerk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but, you know, give Adolf Hitler a set of crutches.
2: Yeah. Wait, I will say the scene when Ron Perlman throws a knife into his leg was pretty fucked up, right? <laughs> I, 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 I. Like, he's he, like, what? You yeah. can't feel it?
1: <laughs> I, 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 liked, Wait, really? I, I, I love Ron Perlman, and the character was funny to me. Uh, you know, after Ripley burns up all of her, her failed clones, and he's like, <laughs> What's a big deal? Was it like a chick thing? It's like I laughed thing. out loud. I, ah. I laughed out loud at that. I, I liked the subversion of, of the the emotion that that beat, and that's something that Whedon does very well. But I mean, ultimately, you know, what, what I'm saying is, you're telling the audience that these are terrible people who do terrible things, and then you turn right around and tell the audience that we should care when they're eaten by giant space bugs, and uh, it, it's 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 hard. It's a hard task to accomplish.
2: Dude, it's Winona Ryder.
1: She's I know.
2: A, she's she's a she little juice. And, and
1: yeah, she's a little juice. care. She looks good in she black tights. She, she's got big, big eyes and she's a cutie. Smart picture cheek.
0: That pixie cut is so fetching.
1: Yeah, well, I, 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 uh, she, she, we, we are, she does tell, uh, uh, Ripley in one of the several extraordinarily blunt expositional beats that, uh, she is programmed to care about the human beings that, uh, she is around. Same.
2: Uh, Let me ask you this. So uh, again, for a film that, that seems to be on so many levels trying to strike out on its own and <laughs> identify itself as something different than what we've seen before with Sigourney Weaver's character, and the aliens are different and all this kind of crazy shit. Is anybody impressed by the
1: reveal that Winona Rider is actually a, a synthetic? No. Uh, yeah, I, I, I found it to be a, a shrug in terms of, of execution. And uh, then when you take a step back, uh, it's like, oh, this is another example of, well, you know, it's an alien movie. We need someone to be revealed that it's a... Uh, know, yeah, that's a synthetic. Although, guys, when she is revealed to be a uh, artificial American.
0: <laughs> Thank you for using the proper term. Well, well yeah. played.
1: Sorry. One yeah. oh, I think it's glasses guy calls her a toaster oven. Yep. And I immediately thought of Bassar Galactica because they're uh their derogatory that's right. term. Cylons is their toasters. Oh the toasters are coming. Ah, you know?
0: And that was later, so boom
1: yeah we're yeah. laying we're laying track you know there ways from this movie to firefly to balsar galaska to motherfucking avatar bro i do have to wait i do have to ask because is
2: when you say glasses guy are you talking about leland norriser
0: yes larry purvis okay. one of several humans kidnapped by the crew of the betty while in cryosleep and delivered to the ariga to serve as hosts for the aliens
2: all right, so John, I will give you credit that his, the, the, his death scene, the most creative use of the, uh, the, the impregnated person uh, in an alien movie, and I actually did like that scene, although people churning into gunfire and not falling down still strikes me as silly, but that's okay, it's Hollywood, I'm okay with that. <laughs> but I wonder, especially since we've been talking so much about Darius Kanji, when he first appears... Didn't it feel like he was just literally repeating his performance from seven?
0: <laughs> I don't right, was recall there,
1: that actually.
2: Was, was yes, there, to a
1: certain degree? Yeah, uh, is, yeah.
2: Is, is Condi filming this, going, I feel like I've seen this
1: before. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but when 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 he pops up, he also delivers the kind of uh, I mean, uh, there, there's another like extremely clunky exposition where he just kind of like fires out. Uh, exactly where he thinks he is and what his situation is, uh, and like a really clear, on the nose way for the audience to just kind of get, uh, you know, this kind of handling of, uh, you know, a supporting character will just kind of pop up and be like, here's my life story. Da-da-da-da-da. And everyone goes, oh, okay, that's that guy's deal.
0: Right. Fair enough.
2: So- Sawyer wants to say thank you.
0: Oh, hi, Sawyer. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Happy birthday.
2: Well, I. I'm kind of sick to do that.
0: You're kind of sick
2: to say thank you.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. When
2: he, when he gets nervous, he he feigns illness. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. It's a good it's a it's a good ploy actually. It works.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: um, my
1: my doesn't Well. Uh, Your sickness doesn't care for that, is what he says. It's adorable because one day, years from now, he's going to dig up this recording and he's going to remember that long, long time ago, Daddy used to do things that were fun and cool. (laughs) Uh, There you go. All right. So sorry, yeah. Say, say, uh, let's see, say something cool about aliens.
2: What do you like about aliens? (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, I just
2: don't know why I just got that.
0: Yeah?
2: <laughs> Who's your favorite alien?
0: I uh, just don't know how I just got that out. Did you like E.T.? Uh, I just don't know how he got that
2: out. All right, guys. I don't think we're going to get a good sound bite out of it. But
0: <laughs> Not this time. It. Next time. I'll okay. be
2: right back. Let me get this one back. Bye, here. Sawyer. Sawyer, hey. Johnson. said bye. Say night, night. Hey.
1: To squeeze the other My one. Night. Perhaps we can get an interesting scream.
2: Night
0: night. <laughs> night night.
1: His sickness
2: does not allow him to say night night. Okay. <laughs> Too
0: funny. Uh,
2: all right, guys. I am. I am back with the caveat that I am holding a baby. The baby has passed fire, so I think we're going to be okay.
0: Okay.
1: You. You guys just jump right in, man. Uh, the. The okay. one only thing that I want. Uh, that, that I, that occurred to me while I was watching the movie was, uh, in this one, the aliens growl a lot. There's a lot of yeah. growling. They, they sound like tigers.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't realize that.
1: It's kind of like in, uh, Jaws 3 when, uh, the jaw, uh, the, the shark growls and roars at people. <laughs> I think of that as being from
2: Jaws 4 when they hit it with the electrocution and it, you know, it makes some sort of roaring
1: sound when it leaps out of the water before she impales it. Lots of growling and and roaring in uh, I mean, in part three as well. I don't want to guys. I don't want to get off on a tangent, and I hope that we can still use this. But I had a I had a coworker say to
2: me with a straight face that he thought Jaws four was better than Jaws three. He's
1: insane, right? <laughs> well, yes. I rewatched the Jaws movies because they all appeared on Netflix a couple mm-hmm. of months ago, and for the fuck about it, I was like, I'm gonna watch all the Jaws movies, and three is a
0: complete pile of shit. Uh, I don't know. I I find it very charming.
1: I've watched it in the last five years, and it's Uh, really good. I probably watched it twice in the last five years. I I did find myself enjoying four more than three. Uh, The Revenge
0: with Michael Caine, you enjoy more. Yeah,
1: yeah. There were aspects of four that I thought were more uh, entertaining and interesting. I, I, I liked... The voodoo curse. I liked, uh, the, the, you know, the, the new setting. Uh, I mean, it's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, well, three in is the nineties, revival,
0: terrible. revival houses played, uh, three in 3D and I was in large crowds watching it and we enjoyed the hell out of it. And I don't think it crossed anyone's mind to play four. Um, it's just, you know, I guess it, it, that's like a different experience um objectively good is not a word i would necessarily you know use here or a phrase that i would use here but right. you know it's just like it's a fun movie to watch it's it, yeah maybe it's so good it's bad so bad it's good is is part of it but it's just much more entertaining and and again that's part back to this movie like the fact that this movie is for me entertaining is puts it ahead of something like a a chore like Alien 3 is. I just, you know, I feel that that matters somehow. Alright, let's get back to this. Let's, let's fucking, yeah. let's do a podcast. So I think at this point, because, you know, we're well in uh, over an hour into this podcast, maybe we won't go scene by scene, but let's just talk about like some of the more interesting aspects and highlights of the film. And certainly when Ripley discovers the failed clones, I mean, that is a, in my view, a, a tremendous sequence. It's tremendously disturbing once we realize that one of them is alive and talking and begging to be, uh, put out of her misery. And she's this, you know, ghastly, sickening hybrid that is still mostly human. So I think that's a really good choice from a design standpoint. But one
1: good. tiny asterisk, though, mm. a tiny asterisk, though, uh, the the failed clone begs Ripley. She says, kill me, kill me. And of all the weapons at her disposal, Ripley uses the flamethrower on this poor creature woman. Uh couldn't just put a gun to the side of her head and make it quick. She had to burn her alive. I noticed and that I, I agree I, I i thought that was um the uh, only
0: thing that I thought of with that to justify it because yeah, it stands out it 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 seems uh stupid for lack of a better word is that like maybe that flamethrower two hundred years from the last movie is more like an instant incineration kind of a thing you hey, know Ellen Ripley, why why not just subject her to Chinese water torture. <laughs>
2: I had the the experience of watching this via Amazon Instant on my computer, which, if you've never done it before, is kind of cool in the fact that whenever you move your mouse, it will pull up on the left side of the screen, the cast, and sort of interesting trivia. And so when I came up to that scene, the interesting piece of trivia was that the inspiration for that scene, so they claim anyway, was the deleted scene of Ripley killing... um, Dallas. Uh, Dallas, Tom Skerritt, exactly huh. in, the first, in the first Alien, um, and so it was. It was basically an attempt to sort of recreate that moment. Um, I I actually find myself thinking more of the woman in uh, uh, Aliens that they find stuck up on the wall when they're when they when they go into the colony. But
0: I don't think it's any of those things. And I mean, I think that's what's interesting to me about the whole sequence is just sort of grappling with the implications of it for Ripley and what a unique horror it is to you know be like I'm a clone I know that I'm not exactly you know the person that I that whose memories I have and I've been I've been concocted somehow like it's a very strange identity and you walk into a room and you immediately know that these are your sisters that these are versions of you that aren't really that different from exactly who you are like it would be one thing if it was normal ellen ripley walking into this she would you know be more detached from it but like it's such a a singular experience to be surrounded and have the compassion for these failed monstrous things that nonetheless are your peers in some way. And, and just the ghastly implications of a version of Ellen Ripley, this wonderful, heroic feminist icon, like living for I don't know how long the way this poor creature that talks to her, who's almost human, but you know, still just a grotes- grotesque horror. Um, like what it would be like to be, that creature for however long she's existed i mean i just think that's one of the more horrible almost like a hellraiser level concept in its sadism to me i I just love uh, it agreed
1: agreed uh i I should also point out that ellen ripley is uh number eight Mm -hmm. and uh she's drawn to a room that's labeled number seven so presumably there are six other rooms
2: no, I believe it was labeled 1 through 7. I had to say, I had to say, oh. looked at it. Okay, I, um, I thought it was, I, I actually I, thought that was, that was a little convenient that it was like 1 through 7, we just shoved all into this one room.
0: Um, oh, it's actually God, like 2 God. rooms. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with both those comments there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a, like, this movie is jokey and fun, but the true horror in this film is exemplified in this sequence. And for me, it it lands. Uh, Yeah, it's fucked
1: up. It is honestly fucked up. It's Honestly, like a weird, clever. I've never seen a a scene like this before in an alien movie or otherwise. Like it, it is like an honestly straight up imaginative, nightmarish, fucked up situation. And it's, uh, and it's, well shot, well acted. It looks cool. She blows it up good. We get a, a funny line from Ron Perlman at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it all works out. It's definitely one of the the high points of the movie. I so,
2: do just want to clarify first of all for our listeners that I am doing this uh, short portion of the podcast with my infant son. So if you hear any ahs and anything like that in the background,
0: it's, it's actually it's, not Mike.
2: Not Mike. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is not the prostitute under my desk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like- she will be very quiet and respectful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just my infant son, Roland. Named for, I hope some of our uh, uh, podcast listeners will get, Roland Deschain from Stephen
0: King's Dark Tower series. I have I no doubt that our listeners will get that.
2: I have no doubt. But I did want to say, too, that my impression watching that scene was... It's one of the few scenes that feels like, like, uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Genet's scene. Like it feels like, just looking at the production design of the creatures and, uh, uh, the way it was shot and a lot of that stuff, it felt like one of the few scenes you could have found somewhere in City of the Lost Children, for instance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I will, this this scene is also uh, an emotional and thematic bookend. To the very end, when we have the human hybrid, when Ripley has to kill it, uh, it it's very bittersweet, sad, like I have to put this thing out of its misery
0: kind of a scenario. That's the next big thing, I think, to talk about, and perhaps the last big thing. But the creature called the newborn, and I think that's a rich and interesting topic to consider, because... The queen, the alien queen has some now, some this version incarnation of the alien queen has some human DNA. So in addition to giving birth to its traditional eggs, it also has a live birth. And the live birth is much more clearly a, a human-alien hybrid and is, you know, many, many human-ish characteristics to it. Even though, of course, it is hideous and murderous. So I think that that, that creature and Ripley's relationship with it and Brad Dourif's relationship with it, um, yeah. are, you know, much more ambiguous and I think interesting. And, and it's not so much that the movie doesn't play that many games with the audience as far as like, how this thing is going to be treated. I mean, it's basically just the version of the alien queen from aliens, like the, the final thing that the characters are going to have to, uh, just dis- dispose of. So that's, that part is not that ambiguous, but yet there's little, you know, little shadings to it. And certainly the way that it views Ripley is uh it's not hostile at all towards Ripley. And so and and the way that it, it, it meets its end is like there's a real uh pathos and like you feel the agony of this thing as it dies a extremely horrible death. You know, it's sucked through a tiny, tiny hole in the uh window of this bulkhead and uh of this airlock, and you know dies slowly and painfully, and it, it, yeah, I felt I don't know about you guys, i guess i'll I'll throw it back to you like i I felt a degree of sympathy for it as it meets this fate. Well, the puppet work is amazing mm-hmm. the 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 effects
1: on that creature are amazing, they're extremely expressive, and uh yeah, they're, they're it's meant to evoke sympathy, and the filmmakers do an excellent, excellent job. Props out to the FX team on the hybrid. It's fantastic. And of course when Ripley is, you know, sobbing as it dies, this horrible death. Yeah. And uh, even the beats that she has where they're just kind of touching each other's faces. Uh, I her moments in that are very uh, sensual. They're very tactile and very much of a piece with the, when the aliens carry her to the nest. And she's kind of born on this wave of xenomorphs and almost kind of a dreamlike state. Yeah. Those beats are as close uh, that this movie comes to, like a true junet moment where they're uh, strange and macabre and dreamlike uh, and sometimes violent, but, you know, ultimately nightmarish. And, you know, the whimsy falls away and we start seeing that something that looks a lot like art for a brief period of time. That shot
2: when she falls into the sort of sea of xenomorphs and is sucked in, I agree, is one of the profound, beautiful moments in this. I found everything with the newborn unconvincing. It pulled me out of the movie. I agree, like I understand what they were going for. The creature looked like pumpkinhead. And I was, I just wasn't, I just wasn't convinced. Everything was about they spent a lot of time trying to set up this idea that, well, you can't trust Ripley because she's part alien, and I never believed it. I didn't buy it for one second. The moment it sticks its tongue out and licks her face, I understand that it was supposed to work. It didn't work for me. And right up to the moment when it was getting sucked out of the... Uh, the, the. Roland disagrees. Roland Roland, it really worked for Roland. Um, <laughs> he's an... <laughs> Probably understands a little better than I do. Uh, right up until the moment when it is sucked out. By the way, it is essentially killed by the equivalent of an airlock again, which I found repetitive and unimaginative. Um, and that whole death scene, I just, I, I, I just didn't buy it. Hmm.
0: You didn't I'm buy not, it.
2: It, it. It is a It, I, I, it not work for me. Her relationship to the creature didn't work to me. Hmm. Um, the creature itself was unconvincing. I didn't like the effects. I didn't like the creature design. It was like an alien without I don't know any of the effects that make the alien scary.
1: Well I I do see the pumpkin head resemblance. I in fact dove once again to IMDB to see if Stan Winston had had done the effects and I I don't think so. I didn't see any Names that jumped out at me. I didn't see The guys
0: that. had worked with Stan Winston. Uh, right. I, I,
2: I, it, was, I, it, was, it was a French Stan Winston, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stan
1: Winston. It is, it is like a... It is Le Pumpkinhead. <laughs> 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 but yeah. Le I, I, I it, is little, it, it is... We're... Uh, Vic, I agree in the sense that the movie is expecting the audience to swallow a huge emotional payload and have it just kind of sold to them. It's basically like, you should feel sad about this. And that- it's like huge, huge, huge beats. I, for all of its ham fist in it, this, uh, it, it ultimately did work for me. The sledgehammer did kind of land, uh, not directly, but, but to a certain degree. Uh The only, the one and only thing that kind of pulled me out of that beat was, um I found myself thinking of Jason X. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's
1: fair. Also, I noticed that even though the suction is strong enough to suck this giant monster out through a hole the size of a quarter, when we cut back to Ripley and um, Winona Ryder, they're just kind of sitting there holding onto a pipe or rope uh, with like a blow dryer going across their faces. uh, There's very little reaction to the supposed level of pressure.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, I think from the design of the creature though, I mean it's very skeletal. It's very it, it looks very ghoulish and you know it has these expressive eyes, but they're deeply sunken in the sockets. and you know it it, it looks as dead as it as it looks alive. It's a it is a truly ghastly creature. And and yet, I think that in the performance, as Mike said, of the puppetry and the expressive eyes, like, there there is a degree, for me, uh, I have to say, a degree of pathosympathy, whatever you want to say. So, uh, it worked for me, but I will remember watching it the first time. I don't think I was terribly impressed by that. Like, as much as I kind of liked the movie, uh, I would say that the ending was pretty weak, as I... Experienced it the first time. And so I think I'm bringing a little bit of a, a, a new sympathy for that character. Uh, you know, for whatever reason. Also, I think that's interesting that it has clear breasts. Like it's very clearly a female. And I, I think, you know, no, I'm serious. Like I think that there's some, some degree of that's a good choice in that her original daughter was a girl. Her surrogate daughter was a girl. You know, like, I I think that there's a degree of extra resonance to the fact that this creature is clearly female.
1: I, I always thought it was hermaphroditic, if anything. Uh, it does have female elements, but I don't know, for whatever reason it feels, uh, you know, there, there's a male element to do it as well. Um, I don't think
0: so, man, because uh, like, I was looking for junk and there's there's no junk. <laughs>
1: Were freeze-framing? Give me that alien dick.
2: <laughs> out, Give me
1: that alien dick. Uh, this,
2: may, this may be the only horror movie podcast in which we reference the word hermaphroditic that is not about... Jamie Lee work. Curtis? No, I was, well, was going to say Sleepaway Camp, but Jesus Christ, John. You like, <laughs> right? By the and, way... ...entiented rumor we don't know anything about Jamie Lee Curtis.
0: <laughs> Side note... I, I recently on Halloween night watched Sleepaway Camp for the first time and mm-hmm. wow, that movie is podcast worthy.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I should point out that, um, at the very end of the, so something I had completely forgotten about this movie is at the very end, uh, there's a door that won't close all the way. And if they don't get closed, then they're all going to die. And they've got like about 10 seconds left to get this door all the way closed. And when Oda Ryder goes back there because she's their kind of crew gearhead, and, um, she can't get it closed because it's jammed and the creature shows up in John, like you pointed out, like, like kind of a lift of, uh, the queen from two, but in this case, it helps her shut the door. Yeah. Shut that front door. <laughs> it's, it, it saves them. It saves them and they immediately kill it because it is, you know, it looks upon its alien mother, pulls off her head. It looks at Braddorf, pulls off his head. And with Ripley, it's very tender. It's very babyish. It's very tactile. But this is also, a la Frankenstein, like it's it's a thing that's too horrible to live. It's you know another genetic monstrosity, like the uh, version of Ellen Ripley that she had to set on fire upstairs.
2: Well, I think that it saved itself
1: in the way that a lot of
2: what we've talked about is setting up the increasing intelligence of these creatures. But I will say this, and and I think this will actually suffice as my final point. After the creature was sucked out of that window, right? And then there's the gaping hole, like you said, Ripley and and Winona Ryder just hanging onto the pipes or whatever. If Winona Ryder had then been sucked off of her pipe and out through the the same hole in the exact same manner, I would have been more sad about the alien newborn hybrid thing. (laughs) Being sucked out the window. And that is why this movie fails. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: it fails is what Roland just said yeah,
2: yeah. I'm chasing pacifiers now
0: <laughs> yeah I I don't think that I would like stick up for Winona Ryder's character or her performance that much you think- you mean the protagonist, John? Oh, she's not the, protagonist.
2: <laughs> she's the <laughs> protagonist.
0: She is not the protagonist. She's she's their version of Ash and Bishop, the supporting character who plays a key role and who becomes important by virtue of their, you know, sort of shifting chameleon-like quality in the film. And and I I don't think she's that terrible at playing that, fulfilling that function, you know, when obviously she's not Ian Holm or Lance Hendrickson, but I, I don't think that she's, <laughs> you undermine your point when you say she's not Lance Henriksen. <laughs> well, I think that's obvious. I mean, who can but, be uh, Lance I, Hendrickson? I, I, well,
1: uh, if if there... the star of Millennium <laughs> yeah, I I love if, if him.
2: and Pumpkinhead.
1: Yeah, right. very true. It all circles back. Uh, if, if there is one, element storytelling element in this entire film that just absolutely does not fucking work at all it's her entire situation it really 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 feels like the studio was like god we need an extra something in there we need like a winota Ryder in there it, it feels like they stuck in Winona Ryder and then wrote her character to give her something to do is uh there, and, and the character...
2: from, is there anybody from reality bites that we can, that we can cram into the, <laughs> but yeah, sadly, it, Ben Stiller it, it wasn't no, available. No, Ethan Hawke.
1: No, but like everything else kind of, kind of, kind of sort of makes sense. You could kind of not along and just her entire deal, her motivation or her reason to be there, what she's doing and why uh, none of that works at all. I mean, she has a scene where she pulls a knife on Ripley and you don't buy it for a second. And they try to explain it with heavy handed exposition and it doesn't work. And then even when she's revealed to be a robot, uh, like uh, a, a no-name, like uh, supporting protagonist suddenly like just dumps this giant pile of lead and exposition on the floor, like, like it's a, a like it's cheap silverware. And uh, everyone goes, Oh, okay. Like, you know, in the other movies, it was like an elegant, oh shit, she's in Synthetic. And in this movie, she needed this gigantic backstory because you know, she's a big star and has, she's gotta have her own thing and blah blah blah. And goddamn. I, I hate to say it, but this movie would actually be significantly stronger if she wasn't involved.
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, first off, lead silverware is always a bad idea. Uh, so I, uh, I'm yeah. with you on that. You <laughs> <laughs> got my silverware.
2: To make sure it's made out of silver. John, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was all ready, to, I was all ready to, to, to gang up on you, but I can't really argue with
0: that. At all. <laughs> I think there's one interesting beat that is is subtle where she has the uh the boxing gloves on and they're getting drunk and she tries to pick up this this cup of alcohol and fumbles it of course with the boxing gloves and spills it and ron perlman screams at her and she leaves and immediately acts sober And you're like, this is before you know she's a uh, synthetic. And you're like, huh, interesting. And the idea is that, of course, she's not drunk. She just was looking for a way to get out of that uh, situation so she can go into the decks that you're not supposed to go into and find Ripley. And so, I mean, I thought that that was kind of well, well done and well executed. And, like, the character is playing, she's playing this sort of duality, which is... Part of what endears her to the paraplegic guy is that she's a little weird and quirky, and you know, an outsider, and not, not smooth and cool. And that's kind of what Bishop or Ash like. They're the synthetics are always outsiders. Yeah, they're
1: they're always kind of space Mormons
0: in uh, a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: um, You hit the nail on the head. This isn't a basketball movie. It's a boxing movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but
1: it is revealed that that she's uh that she's a christian uh it it, it it it's only a factor in one scene and that's it it's it's never mentioned before that and immediately forgotten after that but she does open her robo bible I. I, I but even that feels really just kind of dumped on on the floor of But the she's a,
0: she's clearly ashamed of what she is you yeah that theres
1: this, yeah, there, there's one resonance that she has with Ripley is the fact that she feels a deep level of self-loathing for, mm-hmm. what, for what she is. And,
0: and, and they have that in she, common
1: at this yeah, point. Yeah, she she has, she has a lot of antagonism with Ripley because she projects her own feelings onto Ripley. She assumes that Ripley also hates herself and is also this horrible, self-loathing creature. And when Ripley is just like, no, I'm a lion. I'm a grinning lion. I'm Shere Khan, you know? <laughs> And uh, yeah. it, it kind of pulls Winona Ryder around. It.
0: Yeah, I, exactly. I think that's a great, great point. And 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 one of the amazing charismatic things about this Ripley performance that you know, doubling back, you guys touched on it, but I I haven't really said anything about her. And and I I think that something she started doing in Alien Three and just doubles down on in this film is Ripley really owning who she is and ha- you know like having fun as an actress but also just this character like she develops a strength that's very typical snake pliskin, you know cynical badass kind of a thing but it's the idea that because she's been around this block and she's seen this stuff before and survived it and dealt with it that it gives her a and also just by losing so much it gives her a freedom it gives her a sort of i don't give an f kind of a latitude with to to move around in this dangerous universe and keep it in in a perspective that is unquestionably cool and i i enjoy it even though i i felt at the time like watching trailers for this movie i remember thinking it was too quippy and there's definitely sort of a one-linery quality to her, but at this point, I I don't mind it. It's it's charming, and I, I think that that this was a character that, weirdly enough, like if I want to say anything bad about Aliens, is that she's she's frumpy and she's somewhat you know somewhat of a of a school marm, and somehow in the subsequent two films, like there's actually something sexier and more playful and and wicked about ripley and i think that was really an an interesting place to take the character away from you know the the sweet you know vengeful mother bear
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i think you run the you run the risk of becoming campy when you go in that direction and that is in this movie's worst moments that's what you see now again she's great i mean like like uh Mike said she's chewing the scenery like you can feel this is a great actress plumbing different parts of this because she's not really playing Ellen Ripley she's playing Ellen Ripley as genetically part alien you know clone who has some of her memories but not all of her memories uh it's a I I understand why it appeals to her Explore the the character that they created for this movie. I understand why she signed up for it. I don't I don't begrudge her this at all.
0: But there's an uh, earnestness to the the character in the first two films that I think it's it's welcome to jettison because it almost would become self parody. And even by being campy, like you're you're inviting a different kind of self parody. And I acknowledge yeah. that. But but by somehow being in on the joke or being tongue-in-cheek with it, I personally find that more indelibly sort of uh, lastingly pleasurable than her just always being this furrowed-browed, you know, uh, again, the angry, protective, bitter you know a damaged mother and i i think that it was it was cool to take the character so far afield and i honestly i can't second guess that
2: yeah i'm gonna gonna ask the hooker under my desk what (laughs) pleasurable and i think she's really gonna be the the final voice of reason on this as soon as she can talk Uh, once she
0: um clears her throat so to speak (laughs) Uh, once you remove the little uh, pacifier, the pacifier. <laughs> well, that's a good note to end on. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? <laughs> Just, <laughs> let's go around the horn, uh, Mike. Uh, well,
1: I, I think uh, it's very similar at its core to Alien Three, uh, in the sense that it's got some cool ideas and it's got some cool scenes but ultimately kind of fails as a cohesive cinematic, you know, situation. On the surface, it's the exact opposite of Alien 3. It, you know, Alien 3 is completely dark and dour and no fun at all. Uh this is the first movie that's actively trying so hard to be fun that it pushes into kind of a silly goofy space that kind of jangled with me at the same time. I and mean, there are scenes that hit High levels that are some of the highest of of you know I, I, and at the very end you know when when Ellen is Ellen like I know her well but uh, <laughs> that's Mrs.
0: Ripley to you. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> she's been my life so long I can't remember Dave man. But uh, when, when uh, there are those moments near the end when uh, Ripley's amongst the aliens and uh, you know it's it's very uh, I, it's as close as I've seen. Uh, one of these films get to a moment of pure art where it, it really seems like we've shot, uh, we've taken a Giger painting and just shot it. Uh, and I'll definitely give this movie that. I mean, it's got some cool shit.
0: Well, I'll give Vic the last word, so I'll, I'll give my piece now, uh, so that the, the <laughs> haters can have their rejoinder afterwards. Um, I, I, I think that this film, I thought of Jason X a couple of times earlier tonight in, in discussing this. And I think that it's, it's a weird parallel in that that movie was, uh, four years later, I believe. And like that in some ways inevitably functioned as a, as a palate cleanser or as, you know, a love it or hate it. And it's mostly god awful, uh, new direction. For the Friday the 13th series. And I think that this is the really good version of that. You know, again, not to say that I think this is a truly, really good film, but by comparison and just sort of as a, a departure that works, I think that this movie, like, while not great, I will always say that I enjoy watching it and i understand what it's trying to do and i don't feel that it is undermining the previous or subsequent films i think it's it is what it is and it's uh, a colorful strange little anecdote in the in the alien Uh, multiverse and and also distinguishable in that it pays off something that they were doing with the Ripley character like if there's one thing that you're going to follow from aliens to alien three to alien resurrection it's this sort of journey of Ripley to lose her the, the definable part of herself that was gonna be human no matter what is lost to her and then it becomes just what she chooses to do and who she chooses to be with those you know divided with her very nature in question and i think that 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 works and i i will you know i could think of different ways to take the series but like my my takeaway from doing this podcast is is that I actually am now pleased with the journey of Ellen Ripley, and I have to give the film credit for that.
1: You know, John, if I will say that if Fox has any sense whatsoever, they'll go into this podcast and grab your pull quote of better than Jason X <laughs> and <laughs> p- plaster that across every one sheet and DVD box. <laughs> Every release of this film from here to eternity, John Evans, the franchise guys, quote unquote, better than Jason X. It's like a cool version of Jason X.
2: John, I will actually, I mean, I will, I will echo a large part of your sentiment in that I, I see what they were going for. There was a, a a quote. I remember this and this isn't even, this isn't even my podcast research coming to bear. This is just Vic Wheat. Film nerd uh, research coming to bear. I remember when this movie came out. Sigourney Weaver saying that one of the hallmarks of the Alien franchise is that they find young visionary filmmakers and give them the chance to make their movie. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely true. You can't argue with a directing lineup that includes uh, you know Ridley Scott. James Cameron, David Fincher, and Jean-Pierre Jeunet. If he's the weak link, who would four years later make a best foreign language Oscar winner, *Amelie*? Like,
0: and it's a good movie. I mean, yeah. *Amelie* is a good movie.
2: That's what I'm saying. He's a, he is a fine director, and this is in places you can feel that this is a, the kind of film that he would make. It, it has its upside. It is not a utterly dismissible film in the way that I think the worst of the Friday the 13th films were utterly dismissible. Shut but, your know, fucking I, mouth. Shut your... <laughs> <fair> <laughs> but I will say this. I want to take this opportunity because I don't have an audience very often in my life to say two things. Number one, in the course of talking about... All of these Alien films and Sigourney Weaver, what I have found among all the people I have spoken to is that none of them have seen... Uh, a film from 1994 called Death and the Maiden, which was directed by Roman Polanski. It is based on a play by Ariel Dorfman. She is magnificent in it. It's one of the great performances that she gave. She did not get an Oscar nomination for it. Which oh, that's was the one where
1: crazy. she got tortured by Ben Kingsley? Is
2: yes, one? with Ben Kingsley and Stuart Wilson, and nobody's seen it. I was just looking at it. I've it seen was, it. At twelve million at gross three, I mean, I whatever your qualms because I think it is a filmed play, so it's very much in one location. You sort of feel some of the limitations on it, but I would you not agree that Sigourney Weaver is absolutely brilliant in it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I would consider that something that I I need to revisit, but I certainly was very much impressed with it at the time.
2: But anyway, so yes, yeah, so look if you if you like the Alien movies and. Uh, you appreciate what Sigruni Weaver does across the course of this because she is a marvelous actress who I suspect simply doesn't get enough good scripts coming across her desk. Take a minute. Go look up Death and the Maiden. Again, it's Roman Polanski. You know you're getting a good film with that, and she is just riveting it. It's one of the great performances that she ever gave. But I'm right like- up
0: there with Half Moon Street.
2: I, I think it's, it's certainly better than Gorillas in the Mist, which I think is, is unfairly <laughs> <In> <laughs> Due I do respect a Brian Brown.
0: Uh, <laughs> love She's also, also great in Working Girl. What's that? She's also great in Working Girl.
2: Brian Brown is?
0: <laughs> she.
2: She? <laughs> sorry, I heard he. Yes. No, of course she is. No, but that's what I'm saying. I don't have to tell anybody about Working Girl. That Working Girl has... <laughs> Has, uh has uh, plenty of people singing its phrases. That's why I want to throw that out there. But also, I want to throw out, I wrote a feature film that was translated into Arabic, which sounds crazy, but it's called The Worthy. World premiere at the London Film Festival a couple of months ago. It played at the Dubai Film Festival just now. The Huffington Post said, and I quote, A true mass appeal pleased the critics to film coming out of the Emirates It was uh, uh, produced in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, which both Western and Arab audiences can enjoy and yearn to watch, maybe even side by side. And this, I'm not kidding, is the highest praise I have ever received in my entire life for anything ever, including my children. History has been written. There is no turning back. I don't actually think it's that good. I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be pretty good. And, uh, Tyrese Gibson was out at, uh, the Dubai International Film Festival singing his praises. So, If you're not afraid of subtitles and you see an Arab film called The Worthy come across your iTunes recommended
1: films, check it out. We most certainly will. And did you get a magazine cover off that? I did, although I think that was the the Emirati version of Empire,
2: the sort of the middle, whatever the Middle Eastern printing of the, of that is. So yeah, there's, it's got, it has gotten a lot of press. It is the first uh, I, I almost one of them. It's not quite the first genre film to come out of the Middle East. It is the first post-apocalyptic film to come out of the Middle East. Uh,
1: call this post- a sci-fi thriller, a horror movie? How, how would you characterize the genre?
2: Sci-fi thriller is
1: good. I, I often describe
2: it as a, a post-apocalyptic saw. Uh, we've got um, Peter Safran, who produced uh, The Conjuring and Annabelle as well as Steven Schneider, who produced the Paranormal Activities film, combining with, again, these great uh, Middle Eastern talents. turns out that the people in the Middle East love horror films. They love genre films. And really? this company out there just decided they were tired of distributing American films. They said, why don't we make a film for the Middle East? And uh, it's it's been hugely successful so far. And it opens, I think, in the Middle East. It opens in February uh, of 2017, I don't know when it'll play here. I hope it'll play here. But that really depends on people just sucking it up and going to see a movie with subtitles. So come on, people. It's fucking, just words, all right? It's just words on a screen. It's still violent. I don't know if there's any nudity, but there's a lot of violence. You'll like it. I promise. Well, hey, man.
0: Uh You can always probably... watch them porn right after.
1: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, uh, hey, not like nudity on the internet. I, I, I'm sho- shoving all that aside. I, Vic, in, in all honesty, uh, from, from the bottom of my heart, congratulations. That's all absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, you, you've you been, uh, getting work done in a great way, but it feels like the praise that this film is getting has taken you to a, another weight class, which is fantastic. Well, God knows, fingers crossed, but, uh.
2: <laughs> well, we'll Straight- see, we'll see what happens, but I, from what I've seen, I, I got to visit the set and from what I've seen in the trailers, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm, genuinely pleased to be able to say that I had a I had a part in
0: and he's uh, had Rennie Harlan direct his films in the past everybody I have oh. I
2: have had a, a Rennie Harlan found footage film and if that doesn't get you excited uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to sell you on a movie except to say that it's got Winona Ryder in
1: 1997
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> um
2: I, yeah, well, I, let's wait, the, Sam, uh, wait, wait hang on guys. I, I'm sorry I gotta say I fucking loved working with Rennie and that movie
1: doesn't suck.
0: That's <laughs> so bad. The Our record shows.
1: I, I, uh, I, I've met Rennie. He's a cool and smart guy and yes. uh, he's a talented dude. You know, uh, it, it's a solid movie. I enjoyed it. Um, so did I. Uh, let's throw it out there that uh, the new incarnation of the franchise guys, we're going to take it to Europe. Now we're going to start doing European horror films, um, which aren't, Obviously, you aren't like a true franchise, but it's kind of where our our interests are kind of drawing us. Um, so we're we're gonna kind of shift the focus of this entire show. And also, Vic, it's my understanding that uh, you know, life is kind of pulling you away. You won't be a um, consistent aspect of the show any longer. But we certainly do want you to be involved. Uh I I'd love to give you the opportunity to kind of cherry pick the films. Uh that that you're definitely like, dude, absolutely do not do X without me, you know? And then uh for for the other movies, I guess we'll uh we'll, it'll either be either me and John or else uh we're gonna look into, you know, kind of a rotating different guest stars for whichever episode makes the most sense. So Vic, if there is a move, I mean, you know, you know, you don't have to speak now or forever hold your peace. You can think about it. But I mean, if there are movies that like you actually have to like put your finger on the door is wide open, man. I certainly appreciate that. I mean, I, I, this has been an
2: amazing and fun thing for me to do. There are definitely movies that I do hope that I'll be able to uh, come in and, and, and put my two cents on. Um, it has just been as evidenced by the, fucking screaming baby through (laughs) this fucking podcast. (laughs) That's fucking hard for me to make the the time right now, but as soon as I'm able to make the time, I will and there are definitely movies. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, from my loose understanding of where you guys might be heading with this, there are definitely some movies that I'd like to get in on, so... We'll see. We'll see what I'm able to work out, and if I have to pay a fucking babysitter or something, I'll I'll figure something out. So. I
0: love it. It's good. I'm glad to hear that because uh,
1: let's let, let's put your your screenwriting bucks to use. Yeah, listen. They're are they're already they're already
2: paying for one one hundredth of my children's college funds. <laughs>
0: oh man, Oh, man, brother. Whew. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been a blast as always. I hope everyone listening has enjoyed it as well. And, um, we will leave you in suspense as to exactly what our next film will be. But, uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Adios.